The Tough Love and Second Chances podcast is written and produced by Tony Bennett on behalf of Edgar and reveals remarkable stories of those who refuse to be defined by their disability. The power of the human spirit shines through with examples of how hope, courage, and the opportunity to express oneself through the game of golf makes for a combination that can improve and even save lives. There comes a time when everyone can look at their life with some distance and see how it has turned out so far. For some, it's when a significant birthday is on the horizon, when context and objectivity can be separated from emotion and attachment. Tony Lloyd from Shropshire shared a substantial amount of his time to chaperone me through his story of a genetic twist of fate which resulted in him being born with Focamelia, his stance on opportunity how golf came into his life and his view of the future are all part of this fascinating conversation with Tony Lloyd. Tony Lloyd, it's great to be with you and uh, thanks very much for making the time. I know you're getting ready to play in a tournament. It was your practice day today. How was it? It was good, yeah. It's the first time playing the course and it's always good to play a course for the first time. Um, I had good company, of course, um, as you do at all of these events. Um, and we went around. We had a good. We had a good time. The weather was okay. We had a splash of rain, but nothing, nothing to dampen the spirits, as they say. So it was good. Been quite a year for you this year, hasn't it? It's uh, it's been a bit manic, to say the least. Yeah, I mean, not just the competitions, but everything. Some of the places I've managed to visit, like Port, well, obviously Portugal, but also the Portugal Masters, the British Masters. I was invited to Monte Carlo as well. Um, it's it's been amazing, and I've even got down to my lowest handicap figure as well, eight point eight. So that's really you know, been the cherry as well on top of it. It must be pretty difficult to to pick a highlight, I guess, because I mean, clearly over the last twelve months things have, have changed a little bit in terms of your profile as well, because now a lot of people know who you are, what you do, they know a little bit about how you swing the golf club now because they've seen that and they've seen it on TV. Yeah. Is there any particular highlight that you've had over the last 12 months that, that's special? Well, I think you might know which one it is. I mean, you know, I got an invite by yourself to the British Masters and um, we did a little showcase with Nick Doherty. I mean, not only was that a special thing anyway, I mean, Nick is such a nice bloke. I mean, you know, and, and what a fabulous golfer he used to be. So to do something like that on live TV and to come come across as well as it did, but not only was the experience amazing, it was also, you know, some of the things it's led to, in, including being invited to go play in Monte Carlo for the Princess's Golf Day. And it, it's just, it's just snowballed. It's, um, but yeah, and I, you know, all the messages I keep getting on either Instagram or social media is, it's, yeah, it's gone a bit nuts this year. It's been really good. Did you imagine that could have happened? I mean, where, if I take you back five years, what were you thinking five years ago about your golf? Five years ago, I mean, funnily enough, I say 2014, five years ago, I think we were just doing the, the European Open and that was in England at the time. And I'd actually won my category and I thought, you know, that was something special. But from there, it's, it's, it's it, every year I've thought, well, you're not going to top that year. And every year I've been going, you're not going to top that year. No, 2019 has just been a different stratosphere. It's, it's, like I said, the, everything seems to have got better and better and, you know, things have changed away from golf as well. I mean, I just moved in with my girlfriend and, you know, so I feel like I've had to grow up as well. And 
it's 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 been some year. It's been some year. So tell me about your disability and how that affects you on a day-to-day basis. Okay, so my disability is basically I've got short arms. It's called phocomelia. A lot of people get it confused with thalidomide, but I'm actually too young for thalidomide. Um, but yes, phocomelia is just a genetic uh, twist of fate, I guess. Um, it just meant my arms didn't develop completely. And, you know, they basically el- end up just about the elbow on both hands. So I've got a, I've got a a digit on one side, which I call my thumb, and then I've got two fingers on the other side. So obviously no hands is another thing, never mind the short arms. So everything I do is, is, is usually done with both hands. So write, writing, for instance, I hold a pen with two hands. Typing I can do because luckily enough, my fingers point in the right direction so I can type. And so, but because I've had it from birth, I've never had to really adjust. My parents always used to just let me get on with things and, and just learn how to do stuff. And, so I've been adapting from day one. So, and I've never really found anything I can't do. Shoelaces, maybe <laughs> tying a tie and doing a top button. But, um, but on a day-to-day basis, I mean, I work for a living. I drive a car. Um, you know, I have a son. <laughs> you know, everything you can think of. I like to think I've accomplished in in my day-to-day life, but. There's some things that are maybe a little bit more difficult and sometimes things might take me a little bit longer, but there's not a lot I can't do, especially if someone says I can't. How was it growing up? Because, and I'm sure you'll have spoken to your parents about this, and then I would imagine for your parents it was it was a bit of a shock for them to, to find their son had got focomelia. I, I guess so, um, but I'd, I'd never, I'd, I, you'd, you'd never know it. You, you never know it. I mean, they, they, they've never, they've never treated me anything different, anything, anything different. I mean, my sister's two years younger than me, but I don't think I've been treated any, in any way different to her. I think, again, she's been given the same opportunities I have. Um, and we just, you know, we just deal with day-to-day life as you, as you go along, you know? Um, but yeah, I don't, I, they, if, if they were disappointed, I mean, it's going to have to have been a shock. I can imagine. I mean, when, I found out I was gonna I was gonna be a dad. There was a little bit in my in the back of my head thinking, is he gonna be disabled? You know, just because I am. I mean, I knew phocomelia or I know phocomelia isn't um, something that can be passed on. It's it's not hereditary. So you know, I knew that was the case. But there's still a little nagging doubt. And you know, you see that first scan and you see that he's got arms. And I must admit, I was thinking, yes. And I thought, hold on, his arms are already longer than mine, so that's hardly fair. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, if if they if they were disappointed, they it's certainly never it certainly never filtered down to me. And over over the years, I've never felt disappointed that I'm disabled. I mean, if anything, I embrace it, and it's opened more doors than it's shut on me. And how was about as a kid when you were at school? Because we obviously often hear that kids can be very cruel. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, how was that at school? Yeah, again, I, I don't know. I, I like to think I'm lucky. Um, not just, you know, a lucky person, but I've been lucky in a lot of ways. I've got a lot of friends. I make friends quite easily, I think. Um, but I, I never really got bullied at school. I never got picked on for being different. But I think that's probably because I had a lot of friends anyway. I mean, you get people staring at you, you know, day to day now, even, you know, it's quite funny. My son, when he was first born, he'd spot people staring at me more than I do because I'm so oblivious to it now. 
sometimes, I mean, some of the best things ever happened as I was riding my bike a year ago. And obviously I look very different on a bike to a, to a normal long armed person. And I was just coming up some traffic lights and I was riding the past and there's a bloke in his car driving. He could see him staring and he kept staring and he was, he was looking over his shoulder almost. <laughs> and then suddenly I think he realized that the lights were red because yeah. he hit the car in front of him. Now, you know, I think that's funny. Yeah. And, you know, I don't mind if he wants to pay for staring by crashing his car. That's fine yeah. with me. But um, you get people staring, but I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, I'd, I'd be very surprised if people didn't, because I think we all look at something if it looks a bit different, don't we? And you have the opportunity to explain to people or to talk to people. Is that how, is that sometimes how those those conversations go or not? I, I mean, I like to think people would actually be, I suppose, do you have to be brave to ask? I mean, I think you do. Um, and I, I, I enjoy people asking because assumption is, is something I get a lot of. A lot of people assume, like I said to you, folk Amelia, I'm not, um, yeah. it's not anything else. And I think a lot of people assume it's something else when it isn't. So at least when they ask and they go, oh, right, okay. And then they, you know, realize that, you know, I'm not, a disability caused by a badly prescribed drug, for instance. Yeah. Um, so I think it's good for people to ask, and I encourage people to ask. You know, any disabled person or most disabled people are open to you know to explain if there's something different. And tell me a little bit about how you started to get involved in golf. Not a game that would normally be on the menu of sporting options. For, for me, somebody no. with short arms. No, absolutely not. And it's 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 mad, really, because I used to play football when I was at school at a you know, reasonable level. I you know I used to think I could pick a pass and stuff like that. But most of the sports I I've played and enjoyed the most, the ones that you wouldn't think I could, like like golf, like cricket, like tennis, like pool and snooker, all you know. But I, I don't know. Maybe I found a some sort of macabre sort of test to myself on it. I don't know. Um, with the golf, my dad used to play. I think that's, I mean, so many people would have the same story, wouldn't they? And I don't think he even expected me to be able to do it. But one day we were at a, at a driving range, local driving range, and he was hitting golf balls. And I think I just literally pulled the golf club out of his bag and naturally put it under my arm like I still swing now and just tried to hit the golf ball in these, in these netted, in this netted range. And how old would you be then? Five, six, something right. like that. Um, but obviously you're short then, aren't you? And I could use his clubs quite comfortably, but um, I soon grew out of them. So, you know, I just thought, well, that's not something I'm ever going to be able to play again. And it was many years later, I, I actually used to go to uh, Roehampton to a limb centre down there. And it was it was the last time I went. I was, I think I was 18 or 19 years old. And I think they were just, look, we've not been able to help you with anything else, so we probably don't need to see you again. But is there anything that you can think of that you can't do, which you wish you could? And I just threw golf in there, just for no other reason than it was something. See how you deal with that one. Yeah, absolutely. And do you know what he did? Because the thing is, I didn't realise he was a golfer. Now, obviously, he couldn't just pull a magic golf club out of nowhere. So what he did is he actually got me a piece of copper pipe that you would use in plumbing welded um, a, a, just a three iron, I think it was, to it. So he snapped his own three iron, got the head off, put it on this piece of steel uh, copper pipe in and gave it to me, no grip or handle or anything like that, and just said, try that. 
And, you know, it worked, you know, I mean, it, it ripped my armpit to pieces because yeah. there's nothing on the other end of it. But it was, it was, it suddenly made me think, wow, this is, this is something I could actually do. And yeah, it's it, it sort of, it, it was a very, very, very long journey from there. But it was, you know, I was spotted by um, the local golf pro at my range at the Shropshire. And he thought the idea of maybe getting a, um, a driver's shaft and then putting another one in the end of it. And, you know, that again was much better than a steel, uh, a copper pipe ripping my armpit apart. So that was uh, with a proper grip on it and everything. And he did, he, you know, made me a couple of clubs and a putter as well. And I could actually now just, you know, I could practice properly. And I even went round, you know, and did nine holes. And I think I hit oh, a million and, and, but I, but I loved it, you know. Yeah. And it really sort of lit a bit of a fire in me. And, you know, I thought this is something I want to pursue. And, and again, it was just more over time meeting different people who said, I'm, I think I might be able to help you here. And, you know, I met another golf pro who, who had her own business and she took me to, a, a, I can't even remember the name of the company, somewhere in Birmingham. And they, they didn't just do me a couple of clubs. They actually put 10 clubs together for me. And it's like, wow, you know, this is, this is starting to look like a, 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 a kit of clubs now, you know, a proper bag of clubs. Um, so I was able to play with my friends then, you know, with some of my friends who played golf. And I was only ever playing a couple of times, you know, a year, but I was actually able to go out and it, it was just something that was bubbling along. And yeah, I mean, now it's, it's, I'm in like the seventh or eighth generation of golf club now that, you know, Titleist build them for me. They're all, they're not a shaft in a shaft. They're all one piece. And they've now got rid of the several kick points you had in yeah. shaft in shaft yeah. clubs and, and they're amazing pieces of kit now. They they really are, and it's it's enabled me to hit with more consistency and and enable me to play, compete, and reduce that handicap down. You probably would have started with a regular grip, a regular round grip. That's right. Of course, then a two thumb grip came out. Yes, and that that would have made a difference. I would have guessed hugely. I mean, when I used to when I started playing the first at, at, at the start, I could only ever play one round, and I was. And then I need time for my armpit to heal because I obviously holding the club under my armpit as I do, um, I used to get friction burns. Even if I, even on a summer's day, I go out with three layers of clothes on, I sweating bullets, but you know, I, I, I could, at least I could get round, but at the end of it, I was really, really sore and it takes several days to heal. Um, but then it, it was one of those things that when I was talking to Titleist, um, I, I mentioned this and when I played disabled cricket, because the cricket bats were much thicker. I never had a problem with the cricket bat turning. Yeah. So whatever shot I was playing, it was always okay. And, you know, so again, I held it in a similar sort of way, again, under my armpit. And then I saw KJ Choi playing when he used to use the fatso, the big fat yeah. brown grip. So I asked him if they got those, and they didn't have them at the time when I was down with them, having a fit in. Um, he said, we've got these, though, these two thumbs. We put the two thumb on, and I took one home to try and my goodness, I, you know, I could go, I played 18 holes, then went to the range for an hour afterwards and I got home and I was thought, this is ridiculous, nothing there. So very quickly, <laughs> we put two thumbs on everything. And it's just the fact they're fatter, so they didn't turn as much. Certainly if you had a bad shot, which obviously we all do, yeah. if you hit the, if hit the bad shot and the club twists, it, it would really wrench in there and, and sort of give me a friction burn but it doesn't out because the clubs are thicker and of course it's almost flat on one side as well so i assume that helps 
It is, yeah. Um, but there's still enough room there for me to manoeuvre it so yeah. I can open and close the blade as well. Yeah. Um, and now it's moved on again. Now we're using the super strokes as well, yeah. as well as the two thumbs. So on some of the clubs, that I, you know, certainly other wedges, when I really want to be able to open certainly the widest, sorry, the most lofty club to get out of bunkers and stuff, um, with, the, with the more round than the flat grip, I can certainly open it a lot further. And then, you know, bunkers aren't the, the test they used to be anymore. I can't imagine that there's a golf book out there that says, well, this is how you play with Fog Chameleon. I can't imagine that that's, that's available. Absolutely not. And I can't imagine that every single golf coach, coach that you go to can, can help you. So how do you develop your skills? Do you have coaching? If you do, how does that look? And how do you develop the skills that you've, you've, you've obviously had to develop to get to the handicap that you are? Yeah, I think, I, I mean, the, the work that the RNA and um, the PGA do with their professionals these days, certainly with the inclusive coaching, has got them thinking differently these days. So it's a lot better than it used to be. And a lot of them who have tried to coach me also try using my clubs as well. So they get an idea, certainly of the plane of the shot, yeah. how, it, how it would look visually. What, I mean, you know, anyone who looks at my golf swing, it, it's quite a, quite a bit of impact really because it does look so different. But if you try it the way I swing, you actually notice that the club head is probably only as far away as it would be if you were holding a club normally your way. Um, so they'll, they'll do that and they'll get an idea and then they can work with me. But I suppose the biggest influence is seeing another person with folk Amelia. When I saw Richard Saunders for the first time, um, it was it was striking really because it's the first time I've ever seen another person hit the golf ball like I do. And it was a bit of a shock, you know. I was, I was like, wow, does that, is that what I look like when I swing a golf club? And then you see some film and you go, you know, actually it does. But I learned from that. I learned from seeing Richard play. And, and now I've seen more and more short-arm golfers, you know, like myself. And every single one, whether they're a lower or a higher handicap than me, I can see something in their swing that I can use and I can learn from. And I think any golfer can. Any golfer can do that in any golfer swing. But when you can actually see one that's similar to yours and you can see something they're doing differently that might be getting them more distance, more control, more consistency, it's definitely something you can learn from. And with the shots that you play, because you like every other golfer, you've got to play every single shot in the book and that ball doesn't always finish perfect lie. Sometimes it ends up in a bunker. Sometimes it ends up on a hill, side slope, in the heavy rough. What shots do you find are the most challenging and is there any relationship between the challenge of the shot and the impairment that you've got? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, for, for many years, bunkers were always my my nemesis, if you like, for no better word. Um, because my, my the plane of my swing is quite shallow. Yeah. So I take it away, it's very shallow. And, you know, I haven't got the hinge of the wrists to really pick up the club high. Yeah. Um, and I, again... It, it was because I'd, I'd either take too much sand or I'd, or I'd think, hold on, I can't take too much sand. So you're trying to get close to the ball and you thin the thing into the lip of the bunker. So for many years, bunkers were always always a struggle. I got, again, very lucky with some of the people who I've been able to work with. I've had, you know, I, I've had professionals see me play and then invite me down to actually, you know, so they can work with me. So I've worked Mark Rowe, who's a, he's a commentator now, a former you know, European Tour win, winner, um, Andrew Murray, former European Open winner, and even some of my friends like Mark Smith, all these guys have worked with me. 
where they've been able to sort of say, well, hold on, why don't you try this? So you can get, so, you know, things like moving your weight into your front foot more so you can get that club higher to start with. And over time now, bunkers aren't a problem to me. I see a bunker as sometimes even a safe option, you know, yeah. certainly better than going in the water or certainly better than going in some of the heavy rough you can go into. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, bunkers always were a nemesis. Um, I won't say they're my friend anymore, but you know, they're bit, oh, sorry, a friend, but they're certainly more of a friend than they used to be. So you've been around golf now as a competitor for a few years. Mm-hmm. Have you seen any differences in the opportunities for golfers with disability? Oh, huge, huge. The first time I played a golf event was in 2005. And it's such a weird story. I, I was watching, I couldn't even tell you which, it might have been the Open or, or something on BBC and Peter Alex mentioned um, a disabled Open that was happening um, at Staverton Park, I think it was. And I thought, really? Disabled golf? And I had to do so much research on the internet, which in 2005 really isn't the internet we have these days. Um, and I found via an Australian website, I found a link back to a guy called Newton Shipley who was running the event and I got in contact and I was able to go. I went along to this, this event and that's where I started doing it. These days, the Edgar website, the RNA website, the European tour website, there's so many options on there of how to get um, your eyes on disabled golf these days. And, and the opportunities are amazing, whether it be an elite competition or a, or a, you know, a beginner's session or, or just something or just a social game with other disabled golfers. The options weren't there for me in 2005, but you, you can trip over them now. There's so many options and, and not just options, but opportunities as well. So, you know, really on what you want to do and where you want to go with your game. We hear a lot about disabled tournaments yeah. and we hear a lot about the atmosphere at those tournaments. How, how do you... F- how do you try and summarise that? Because it is a different atmosphere. It's special. It really is. I mean, ninety percent of the golf, maybe more than that, I play is at my club, and it, and it is for most people. Sorry, it's a fly there. Um, and every time I play golf with the guys at the, at the club, it's just a standard game of golf, and it and, you know it's not it's no no way a boring game or anything like that. I mean, but when you come to these events, it's it's like meeting family or you're competing with, oh, it's, it's really strange. It, it, it's, it's just a dip. I can't even explain it. The best way to say it is my, my girlfriend's with me this week and she's come to this event and, and she's coming away with a smile on her face all the time. And I think that's probably the best thing you can take away because you do come away with a smile on your face because there's people from different backgrounds, from people who've been born with an impairment or gone through some sort of trauma to get there. And, and, the attitude of these people I play golf with at these these things is is nothing can stop them or you know nothing's going to stand in their way from getting that ball around a golf course. You know some of the guys I play with at home can can be guilty of moaning about oh I've got a bad back or I've got a bad foot and I'm just thinking yeah I'd like to see you say that at one of my Edgar events yeah, yeah. they just wouldn't get away with it. <laughs> and tell me about your your view for the future of golf for the disabled because clearly it's a growing sport mm. i think disabled golf as part of the mainstream sport seems now to be very much on the agenda and it seems like the major and the leading organizations are really embracing golfers with disability and that's that can only be a good thing what is your view on the future let's say we go five years down the road 10 years down the road 15 years down the road you, you pick the, the time frame 
But what do you see for the future? I, I, I mean, the, the way I've seen it grow since I've been playing on on European the European stage, if you like, it's growing, it's growing, and it's growing exponentially every single year. Um, and now with the work the European Tour are doing and the opportunities they're giving to some of our golfers here at Edgar, like the Renaissance at the Scottish Open and the, and the upcoming Dubai experience they've got, it's, you know, I can see that only getting bigger and bigger. And hopefully, you know, in, t- in 10 years' time, I just hope I'm still playing, um, that my back will let me carry on. Because um, I'll be, I mean, I'm 50 next year, so goodness me. Um I can see it just growing and growing. I can see there being some sort of world tour. I hope at some point that, um, you know, there'll be more and more opportunities for us to play along the side the professionals, whether it be a demonstration or like these events that are happening, rec- you know, more recently where they actually, you know, they play in the same field off the same tees and, you know, with, there's nothing different to the circumstances. They just happen to be golfers with an impairment, but they're still out there and they're competing in a competition alongside the professionals in 10 years time I can see that happening a lot more um, it's going to grow and I mean I had the, the pleasure at Santa Maria I played alongside um, Adam and Brendan in, in a group and I was chuffed to bits because I was out with the good guys you know I was out with the really low handicappers I mean I'd had a good tournament to be honest but I was out with them and at the end of the thing was, oh, God, I felt like such a dad I was, I was signing my card with them and I just said to the guys, I said to both of them, look, I'm going to sound so ridiculous now, but you guys are the future. And this is, you know, it's good to see that the sport I love is in such good hands and, and they are the future. And I just hope more and more younger disabled golfers start coming through and, um, and they are, and I'm seeing them coming through. And I just hope I'm still playing in 10 years time to see these guys just take it to the next level. How do you think we can reach more of those guys? Because I think you're right, is that there is more opportunity now and, and there's more young people coming in, but clearly there's never enough young people coming into the game. So how do you think we can go and reach those people? Because I guess that acquired disabilities don't happen until you get to probably 15, 16 years of age as a general rule. Mm. That's not to say that it doesn't happen before because clearly it does. Sure. But of course, as you start getting on a motorbike or you start going on machines that go faster or... You end up going into war or, sure, yeah. you know, all of those kind of issues. Um, then acquired disabilities tend to happen a bit more. For genetic disabilities, that's not the case. And so we, we can certainly get them young. So how, how do you think we can go about that? Have you any ideas? Well, I think, I mean, I think to a certain extent, you're, you're doing a good job at the moment, certainly with the Mulligan book for a start. I mean, you're, you know, you're putting these in rehab centres and limb centres and this is where I used to go as a, as a, as a, as a young person, whether it be, you know, five through to 18 years old, when they just realized there's not a lot they could do for me. I mean, I couldn't use, I couldn't use artificial limbs. They weren't, they were no good for me. No sort of prosthetic could actually help me. And they realized that. So they sort of sent me on the way almost, you know, nicely. But, um, but, you know, to be sat there, if I'd have found the book, the Mulligan book, and I'd have been sitting through there in a waiting room and I read that, I'd have been, totally taken by that um because kids like sport kid you know whether i used to play sport all the time when i was a kid i didn't I'm very good at it or didn't think i was but you couldn't stop me running around kicking a ball or hitting something with a stick or or just chasing things around and and you know any healthy kid or you know who might have a you know a, some sort of genetic disorder or or impairment they 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 will see they could see the mulligan book out there and read it and totally inspired into into wanting to be 
part of this growing sport. Um, and obviously social media as well. You know, all the guys I know, are, you know, we love coming to these events. And as soon as we get here, we're just telling everyone all about it. We're sending photographs of different people. Or, my God, I played golf with a guy with one leg who hit it 300 yards. Or I played it with a guy with one arm who chipped it over a bunker, hit the floor and spun and went in the hole. Just stuff like this. And, and that gets out to a wider range of people, a wider audience. And I mean, social media is it's definitely one way of doing it. And, I mean, that happened to me with, with the whole you know, the the British Masters and next thing I know, I was, I was sitting having dinner with Felipe Massa and Valtteri Bottas thinking, how the hell did this happen? <laughs> Tell me a little bit about that experience at the, the British Masters. So, you know, what did you feel like in the, we'll say the hour before, because mm. you knew when you were going to go on, you're going on live TV, you're going to be in front of millions of people. Yeah. Yeah, on the range, and you've got Matt Wallace and I don't know half a dozen other top players, Ryder Cup players next to you. Yeah, you've got Nick Doherty, who is a tremendous supporter of golfers with disability, and you're now going to go and show in in a very short period of time. You've got maybe five or six minutes. Yeah, and you're live. What, what were you thinking in that that hour before, and then what were you thinking at the moment when yeah. Nick puts the the microphone in front of you and says, "Well." Tony Lloyd, uh, tell me a little bit about how you play golf. It was, it was, yeah, it was, a, it was an experience, that's for sure. Um, I mean, the, the hour leading up to it, because we we kept moving, I think it helped. You know, we were like, right, go from the car to here. I had, I had my best mate with me. I had my son with me, so that was all good. Um, and obviously, I had Mark Taylor there. He was with us on the range, and he he was very good because I was just hitting shots on the range, and he was going, "You got better, you have. You know, you're doing this, you're doing that." And, and I thought, I don't know, is he being serious? Or is he just trying to calm me down? I don't, I don't know. But I mean, inside, I was, I was just looking around, thinking, my goodness, I'm on a range here with these guys. But it's not, I don't think it's an arrogant thing to say. But when I was hitting golf balls, I was doing what I like doing, and because it's, you know, it's a, it's a real passion of mine. I was, you know, I was in a comfort zone to a certain extent. Um, obviously, when he got nearer to, you know, to to the minute and they were going live in a few minutes and the producers were talking to Nick in his ear and he's going, okay, yeah, yeah. And I was like, okay, this is live then. Cause I didn't even know it was going to be live. I thought it might've been a recorded thing. And, and the only thing I was worried about was swearing or, <laughs> or, or just, or just stammering or, or whatever. When we were doing the talking, when it actually came to just hitting the golf ball, it, it was like, oh, okay, right, I can do this. This is the bit. That was the easy do. bit. This is the easy bit. And yeah. it was driver as well. So it's on a great big tee. And, and you know, I knew I could do it. So we hit two two good shots. Well, one a bit thin, but the second one absolutely came out the screws. Um, and it, it was just good. And Nick, obviously Nick beforehand was having a go with my clubs. And Adrian Otegi came along and wanted to have a go. And, and you know, so that was all, you know, a bit of chat before and after. And, and, and after and during and everything and but yeah I mean I think afterwards once they took the microphone off there was a bit of a <laughs> there's definitely a sigh of relief afterwards you know but um yeah I think I think everyone seemed to enjoy it anyway I think Nick was really quite taken by how difficult it was to hit the club the way I do he certainly was because he couldn't hit it I mean he had, he had half a dozen goals at it and didn't get close to it eventually just got it on the back end of the club and moved it off the tee That's just it, a few yeah. meters but the one, the one that was good though, because like I said, Adrian Ortega was there, and he was having a go before we started filming, and he couldn't hit it. He was, he was doing what everyone else, everyone does it, and they all swing outside the ball, and they couldn't hit it. 
But he stayed around and watched the interview. And at the end of the interview, when all the cameras had gone, he came across very nicely and sort of, we said that was very good, which was very nice of him. And he said, do you mind if I have another go? I've been watching and I've seen how you do it. And he took the club off me and I handed it over and he took the club and he went up and he hit 100 yards straight away. He went, yeah. I knew it. And he could see that he, as a, you know, the professional golfer's mind was working, he was watching me do it. And he thought, I'm not going to go away not hitting one. And he came back and he hit two really good shots and, um, and went away quite happy. He figured it out. Yeah. Exactly. Tony, I've got a, a question that I like to ask the most people that I interview. And that is, uh, if you were to advise somebody who's in a similar situation to yourself, so you take yourself back now, and I know that you started at five and you, you had that first goal with your dad, but then you had a second goal when you were considerably older than that. Yeah. You take yourself back to that age, about an hour before you picked up a golf club to give it a go. Mm. What advice would you want to give to somebody who's in a similar situation to yourself and trying to figure out, well, you know, is this a sport for me? Is this something I'd like to do? What advice would you give them? I'd say stick with it straight away. I'd say just just try it. Just try it, learn, and stick with it because it, it's it's such a good sport. Not just because it's a good sport, but it's also great socially. It's also great for you know for your health as well. It's got so many benefits to it. Golf. It's um, but the euphoric feeling you get when you hit that good shot. And you always get at least, I mean, if you're really good, you hit loads of them, but you know, you always walk away or I walk away from every round of golf and I always remember the best shot of that round. And that is the shot that keeps you coming back all the time. So if you can just aim to get that one shot and come back every time thinking, yeah, I'll try that shot again, I'll do this. And that's what I would say to my, my five-year-old self was stick with it. Well, look, Tony, it's been fascinating chatting to you. Thank you very much for your time. I know that you've got other things that you need to do. You've got to get yourself ready for your event. So thanks very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. This was an Edgar Player story, supported by Ping, helping golfers to play their best. For more information about Edgar, please visit edgargolf.com. Stay tuned for the next Tough Love and Second Chances podcast. Ping. Play your best. Play your best.